Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Much of the madness that we're hearing from the political left about the impeachment inquiry is actually just that. There's no there there. You've got no evidence. This impeachment inquiry is nonsense. We should investigate the investigators. That was actually Representative Ocasio-Cortez who said that. And and, and I wanted to kind of expose some of the insanity that, that we heard and kind of get uh, take a step back. Sometimes when people are engaged in something, we give them the benefit of the doubt because we're rational people and we assume that they're rational people and we want to actually hear what it is that they're saying. What is it that they are commenting on and does it have any validity? I spoke earlier today with William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com about the impeachment inquiry and about what some of the, some of the questions that were asked and some of the statements that were made after the fact on cable news, specifically MSNBC. Now, I should go back in history a, a little bit because when it comes to the impeachment inquiry and William Jacobson of LegalInsurrection.com, it was on this very show, I think uh, uh, on one of the live streams, where you discussed the fact that an impeachment inquiry should happen. You were the first person I heard discuss it. I credit the entire impeachment <laughs> inquiry to you being on this show, having this conversation with me, sir. Well, uh, of course, it never would have happened without me being on your show. This is this is fact, and you can quote it. It's done. It said it must be true. Uh, I want to share with you a couple of things that uh, happened. One during the impeachment inquiry with Jonathan Turley, George Washington Law, and then a couple of statements that came after. This was a question that was asked by uh, Congressman, uh, a Democrat, a part of the Progressive Caucus, Ro Kahana, out of California. Listen. Can you explain uh, to the committee and the country why you believe that the current evidence does not support the articles of impeachment today? Well, at the moment, these are allegations, and there there is some credible evidence there that is the basis of the allegations. But I I understand that, and I'm not questioning that. I'm I'm questioning what you you don't think today, if you were going to vote, if this was the case, you would vote no, correct? On this evidence, certainly, because inquiry. Okay, and, yeah. and my question is, if someone said to you, okay, Mr. Turley, why are you voting not to impeach President Biden based on this evidence? Where do you think the evidence is lacking? Where, where does it not rise to, to the level where you think uh, it needs to be? What are the places that you think is, is missing? Well, I said in my testimony that the key here that the committee has to drill down on is whether they can establish a linkage uh, with the influence peddling, which is a form of corruption, and the president, whether he had knowledge, whether he participated, whether he encouraged it. Now, I, I agree. That's the link that has to be made. But I thought the question itself was peculiar because isn't the purpose of an inquiry to see where these things go? It's not like they walk in with nothing. They walk in with bank records and text messages and a host of things. Uh, I, that kind of questioning happened a lot. It was Representative Ocasio-Cortez who asked all of the, the people there who were testifying, do you have any firsthand knowledge of a crime committed by the president? And they all said no. As Stephen Miller uh, wrote uh, uh, on Twitter, he does work at Fox News, did you actually see somebody hand a bag full of money with a big dollar sign on it <laughs> over to Joe Biden? The question itself seems to be an unwillingness to accept the fact that there's some serious smoke here. What was your take on that exchange? 
Well, that exchange, I didn't watch the entire hearing. I have seen clips and I've seen reports, particularly with regard to Turley. The Democrats are so much better than the Republicans at asking completely irrelevant questions and then somehow acting like they're actually decisive in this case. The question to Turley uh, and the reason he was there was whether there was enough to start an inquiry, not to take a vote today. Okay. And so they ask that question, but then they turn it around later and say, aha, and they show clips. Jonathan Turley says there's not enough evidence to impeach. Well, that's not why he was called to testify. This isn't an impeachment vote. This is not an impeachment trial. This is the opening of an inquiry because there's certainly strong, strong circumstantial evidence, maybe more than circumstantial, that Joe Biden was selling influence through his son, Hunter and that this was a family business and that money that goes to Hunter and other family members is really a benefit to Joe Biden. This was enriching his family. So there's there's plenty to go on that there's justification to open an impeachment hearing process. But just like, you know, at a trial, you don't say to the jury before the opening statements, do you have do, do you vote guilty or not guilty? Well, Let's hear the evidence. Then I'll decide. Okay. That is, that is that's exactly it. Let me get, let me give you another piece. This was in uh, a one-two punch with Alex Wagner on MSNBC. It was uh, Pete Buttigieg, the Secretary of Transportation, and Adam Schiff. Let me start with. Uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, who, of course, led the charge about the impeachment of Donald Trump, claimed the Russian collusion, said he had evidence of it. And as we have learned, that wasn't uh, the case. Listen, I think it was a complete debacle. And, uh, you know, and if you'll pardon the expression, it was uh, an ass backwards uh, impeachment proceeding. Uh, Historically, what Congress has done when it believed a president was engaged in wrongdoing that might rise to the level of a high crime or misdemeanor is do a thorough investigation. Once you've done the investigation and believe there's a sound basis, then you start an impeachment inquiry. Uh, and at the end of that, you bring in the experts to evaluate the evidence you presented and put it in constitutional context. Well, today. Now, let me ask you a question, sir. You bring in the experts and put it into context. Uh, I don't claim to be the expert you are on the Constitution of the United States of America. But I don't recall anything about impeachment requiring a bringing in of the experts. I'm pretty sure it's a political tool where the House impeaches and then the Senate holds a trial. This seems a massive moving of the goalposts. Of course it is. I mean, this is how they deflect things. They move the goalposts. They insist that Republicans do what they never did with regard to the two impeachments of Donald Trump. Uh, they all announced he was guilty before they started any inquiry, uh, you know, based on a transcript, I think it was, of a phone call, somebody in Ukraine. So, no, the Democrats never do this. And this is, again, why they're so much better than Republicans at this messaging. They just repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. MSNBC repeats it, repeats it, repeats it. New York Times, Wall Street, uh, I'm sorry, Washington Post. Well, they're so much better at deflecting these things. There is a mountain of evidence with which, for which to move forward on a formal impeachment um, inquiry. And at the end of that, when the evidence has been gathered, they can vote whether to move to an impeachment hearing where they'll take votes. Uh, would you but- do me a favor? Would you dig in for a moment on 
I, I mentioned this uh, on radio all the time that impeachment is not legal. Impeachment is political. While it is a process, it is indeed a, a political process. You agree or disagree with that statement? Well, well, it is a political process. It's set forth in the Constitution. Um, you know, if there is an impeachment trial, which there were for Trump, it would be presided over by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So uh, it, it's a quasi-judicial process. But the decisions, you do not need experts. There, you know, you do not need the levels of proof and the um, legal procedures that take place in a courtroom because those legal procedures are specific to the court system. They're not specific to the impeachment system. So it is at its core, a political process. We'd like to think that you would not impeach somebody and then have a trial without substantial evidence. But I think that with regard to Trump, certainly the first impeachment, very thin evidence that he did anything wrong. In fact, history has probably vindicated him because what was he asking the Ukrainians about? It's about Joe Biden's corruption. And now we know that there was, okay, whether it was illegal corruption or whether it was just not illegal corruption, uh, influence peddling, uh, right. which Jonathan Turley referred to isn't necessarily a crime, depending how you do it. Uh, so, you know, no, this is the Democrats have have shifted through their media operation, the focus of the debate. The debate is not whether there's enough evidence to vote tomorrow to uh, impeach Joe Biden and then put him on trial in the Senate. The question right now is, is there enough evidence to suggest that it it requires further inquiry. And the answer is yes. I, I think that's so plainly obvious. That brings us to Secretary Pete Buttigieg. It's almost as if the memo went around, sir. Listen to this. It's insane. I mean, here we are, something like 50 hours from them shutting down the funds that we use to pay air traffic controllers who make sure that 16 million flights a year take off and land safely. And they're busy with shutdown. They're busy with impeachment for they don't even know what for. They, they, they just want to have. They don't. They don't even know what for. I was unaware, uh, William Jacobson, uh, legalinsurrection.com, Cornell Law Professor, that Congress can't do two things at once. And the possibility of government shutdown means you don't look into impropriety regarding the president of the United States. Yeah, well, what he's saying is that because of the possibility of a shutdown, we should shut down now. We should stop doing anything. Okay? <laughs> so we should do a preemptive shutdown because there's a shutdown that may or may not happen. I think it's probably likely. And of course, we all know when the federal government shuts down, it doesn't really shut down okay, uh, at all. Uh, it continues to operate. There's all sorts of exceptions to that. Uh, you know, but that's that's what they're doing there. We can't look into Joe Biden's family corruption and influence peddling because the government might shut down. We'll deal with that when we get to it. But in the meantime, we've got somebody who, by all appearances, uh, sold his office as vice president to benefit his family, maybe to benefit himself. We don't know, but certainly to benefit his family and his son and sold his position as a likely uh, presidential candidate uh, for this cycle um, uh, and for the you know the prior cycle also uh, to uh, foreign bidders 
to enrich his family. I mean, it was the the evidence of influence peddling uh, by Joe Biden is overwhelming. But I think we need to know more. And you know, Hunter Biden is now on off gone on offense. He's he's suing people for you know blowing the whistle on doing the IRS. Uh, and suing others. And I wonder if people would view it as uh, the evidence on Hunter Biden and a peddling influence operation. That's crystal clear. The question is, is it crystal clear regarding President Joe Biden? I think that's where people want to make uh, the distinction. I think that's what the inquiry is for. But would you argue uh, for or against after this day one and what you've seen of it and certainly the reporting that you've read? Uh, should the Republicans keep going or is this a fool's errand and put an end to it? No, they've got to get keep going. They've started it. Okay, you don't just call it off after day one because MSNBC is upset with you. Okay, and MSNBC is bringing on the same talking heads who say Donald Trump colluded with Russia and it committed treason. They're bringing on the same fools like Adam Schiff to now defend Joe Biden influence peddling for his family benefit. And I think under any corruption statute or any corruption prosecution. If you're engaged in political corruption and the money's going to your wife instead of you or to your son instead of you or your family, that's considered a benefit to you. Okay. And, and I think it's laughable that they would say the Biden clan got mega wealthy by selling Joe Biden's office, but that didn't implicate Joe at all. If he knew that, about it, then it's corruption. Just really quick before I let you go, is that the legal standard that if it benefited your son, it could be seen as that benefited you and therefore it's the same? Well, if, it depends on the circumstances, obviously the facts. But if if it's, if it's you're selling your office, if you're selling political influence, but you say, hey, wire the money to my son, not to me, because I don't want a trail to me. you know. And I think that's probably what happened here is that the, that message was sent. Don't you dare send money directly to Joe, send it to Hunter. So if you're influence peddling for your family benefit, I, I think that under most corruption statutes that I've seen, that, that would qualify. William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. Always a pleasure. Love having him on the show, uh, breaking it down. If you want to see the full interview, uh, check out what we've got going on on Rumble, rumble.com slash Tony Katz, and subscribe. You can also find it at TonyKatz.com. Keep it here. This is Tony Katz today. There always has been Mark's North Star. I'm so damn proud to serve with him. I, he's made, he's made it the central image on his challenge coin. That is President Biden talking about General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who has stepped away after four years. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. What's going on, everybody? Good to be with you. Good to be able to do the show. Hope to keep doing it for a long time to come. That is the plan. Maybe some announcements coming in the future. Maybe not. You never know. Um, this is how uh, Reuters writes it. Top U.S. General Mark Milley will retire on Friday after a four-year tenure that saw successes like the killing of ISIS head Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and helping Ukraine to defend against Russia's invasion, but also included the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan and a rocky relationship with former President Donald Trump. You're talking about the withdrawal from Afghanistan that cost lives. Never mind 13 
killed service members. All those Afghans who were left to die, American citizens who were left to die because DOD couldn't figure out how to coordinate with state to ensure they weren't leaving bodies behind. It wasn't chaotic. It was a death sentence. I mean, if we're going to say these things properly. Mark Milley's career will be looked at in very, very unique ways, contrasting ways, because you can't deny um, the, the, the service, you can't deny his history, but you can't deny the problems either. And certainly never mind Afghanistan, which in and of itself should be enough to make you say, glad he's gone. There is going to be this continued conversation of the wokeness question. The idea that we have allowed the military to become an agent of social change. And the military should never be an agent of social change. It just shouldn't be. The military has a job to do and it should do its job regardless of what's going on around it. It doesn't have to have this many of this and this many of that and this many of the other. It should be proactive in trying to recruit the best people across the spectrum. The best men, the best women. The best white people, the best black people. The best Asian people, the best Hispanic people. The best Americans. The best people who want to be Americans. Who want this country to thrive. That's what it should be about. So you have to engage a recruiting conversation that says this is why it matters. Very hard to do when you have a society that has been so infiltrated that it says this country isn't worth defending. Maybe that's one of the reasons that you've got the bad uh, recruitment issues. You've, you're not hitting your recruitment goals. Maybe it's because you've turned the military into something that is of uh, as an agent of social change as opposed to this instrument that recognizes what America is and pushes that strength out into the world when necessary. That's what we want. That's what we should want. That's what we don't have. I'm so glad that Joe Biden was so damn proud to serve with General Milley. It doesn't seem that his former classmates were really too proud of him. My classmates from Princeton, so maybe we can hear you shout. That was pretty weak, actually, so not sure what to make of that. But I was made an honorary member of the class of 1980 from West Point. So all the West Point classmates, maybe we can hear from you. Oh. That's even weaker. Let me go back to Princeton. Yeah. Yeah, you might want to make sure you've properly staffed the, the audience. If you're going to be doing some call and response kind of thing. I don't know. Maybe it means nothing. Maybe it's just they couldn't attend. Maybe they weren't necessarily invited. Maybe it means something and they didn't want to go because Mark Milley isn't the guy who brought them a lot of joy or they thought of with much respect. I don't have an answer for this. What I am constantly reminded of is that we have a job to do in rebuilding our military. Never mind the number of ships. Never mind our ability to deal with cyber threats. Never mind Space Force. You understand that the stories coming out of China is that they're taking caverns on the moon and trying to build bases there. We're talking about weaponizing the space. It's crazy stuff. Do we have a military that's up to the challenge? I don't know. 
Its leadership certainly doesn't seem to be. New leadership is necessary. Elections should have consequences in the military. This is Tony Katz today. So I had this pretty long, intensive conversation with William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor over at LegalInsurrection.com. It's actually his uh, website. Me, I'm Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. And I, I wasn't planning on having him on, on the show and, and, and talking to him, although I did want his thoughts about in, impeachment inquiry. But I'm, I'm going through, right, I'm setting up for the show and I'm going through some of the late-breaking stuff. Of course, the death of Senator Fe- Dianne Feinstein at the age of 90. She had been in, in poor health, passing away in Washington, D.C. And, and now it's the drama of, well, what are they going to do? You have Gavin Newsom, the governor, who gets to appoint a senator. So now everyone's got the Machiavellian kind of plan that will what will happen is Kamala Harris will resign as vice president and then Gavin Newsom will appoint her back to the Senate and then Joe Biden will nominate Gavin Newsom to be vice president and the next thing you know it's Gavin Newsom running for president the Democrats have got all their bases covered and I'm like my gosh people watch a lot of movies and then I hear what you say. You say to me, Tony, it's a Democrat. It's totally plausible. And I'm like, you're right. It's totally plausible. So grab some bourbon, sit back, and watch what happens. I don't actually believe that's going to be what happens, for the record. I don't believe it. And people are already moving into the political as opposed to recognizing uh, that uh, this woman who's been in the Senate for decades uh, passed away. Uh, and she's got an interesting story. And no, I didn't agree with her on, on the politics. But but take a moment to say Godspeed and, and good to be at rest. Uh, and if you want to then say uh, Democrats should not have had her in office for the last couple of years, this was wrong. This was really wrong to do to the woman. Uh, you're not wrong about that at all. You're not. But I'm, I'm going through everything that, that's going on. I'm, I'm checking out the latest stuff. And I came across this story over at LegalInsurrection.com that I could not understand. But when I read the headline, I'm like, this can't be good for free speech. This can't be a good conversation. So I, I, I reach out to William Jacobson over at LegalInsurrection.com. I say, we have to talk about this headline because you have a story. Over at at uh, legalinsurrection.com that I don't understand. <laughs> this was the headline. I know you're laughing at me because I didn't get it. I'm telling you, I didn't understand the thing. Uh, I should have gone to law school. Here, here, here's how it reads. I'll even throw on the glasses for you. Georgia federal judge rules racially discriminatory contracting is speech and expression protected by the First Amendment. Emergency appeal filed. You want to take it very slow and walk that through yes. with me, please? I'll take it very slowly, but it is ending up in a very bizarre situation. I'll give you the end result before I get to the begin- beginning. And the end result is if this judge's ruling is held up, which is now supported by various civil rights groups, it could be the end of anti-discrimination statutes in the U.S. So the roles are reversed. The people who are supposedly for civil rights are arguing a position in a case which could end up destroying their entire regime of anti-discrimination laws. Stepping back to the beginning, Ed Bloom is somebody who 
was behind the Harvard lawsuit on affirmative action. And his group there were Students for Fair Admissions. He formed another groups, uh, another group, Americans for Equal Opportunity or something like that. Um, and they sued a, an investment fund in Georgia under, uh, because that investment fund had a special grant program, which was only open to black women. And the argument in that case in Northern District of Georgia is that that violates 42 USC 1981, which was a post-Civil War statute to protect contracting, essentially to, to give freed slaves the full right of contracting that white people had. And it basically says, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me, that everybody is entitled to equal contracting rights in the country. And when we say contracting, we're talking about the ability to enter into contract, to have the opportunity to get a deal. And that would that apply specifically to the federal government or state governments and, and not to private citizens? No, that applies. There's no such limitation. So, uh, the, so they did not bring that lawsuit under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which was what the Harvard UNC cases were, uh, because arguably this investment fund in Georgia would not be subject to those constitutional limitations as a private entity. I'm not sure why they didn't sue under any other anti-discrimination statutes. That was their decision, but they sued under this specific one. I think it was the you know Civil Rights Act of 1866. I think I have the year right. Maybe it was 1868. Uh, and, and that's what they sued under, a single count that this grant program, which discriminated on the basis of race, was unlawful under that statute because it deprived people other than black women, which would include Asians, Hispanics, whites, arguably black men, um, uh, deprive them of their their right to fair treatment and equal treatment in contracting. So that is the case. It was something of a rally around effect. Al Sharpton, Ben Crump, the usual suspects rallied around this investment fund. And the investment fund is run by black women. Okay. And they then created a grant program limited to black women. And uh, so they sued. And the judge ruled earlier this week that that grant program was okay because by limiting the grant, which would be a contract, they'd have to enter into a contract with the grantee who would agree to abide by the grant terms, that by doing that, they were expressing a viewpoint that Black women have been excluded from the investment field, and this is a way of them expressing their viewpoint was this grant program. And that is protected, the judge said, under the First Amendment as uh, free speech and free expression. So now now, now it gets confusing because when I look at it, I, I say to myself, if, if I were to offer up, let's call it a scholarship, uh, I, I'm, I'm Jewish, I, I know, I know you, you are, uh, if, if I were to offer up a scholarship to Jewish students, I can do that. I could say this is for Jewish students. How is that? How is that a problem uh, regarding free speech? Well, I, I, I'd have to look into that, whether you could, in fact, limit it. But that's not this case. The case in Georgia is race, and race is clearly covered by that statute. I don't know if religion would be covered. I'd have to look at it. But could you offer a scholarship only? Well, a scholarship, there would be a contract. Could you offer a contract solely to 
whites. I think Ben Crump and Al Sharpton would be the first to say, no, you can't. And they probably would cite the same provision that the plaintiff in the Georgia case has cited. It says everybody needs to be treated equally with regard. You cannot discriminate on the basis of race with regard to contracting. So and now so we ask ourselves, what did this judge say? Talking to William Jacobson, a Cornell Law professor, LegalInsurrection.com. What did this judge say in the case that has you particularly bothered about this ruling? Well, what the judge said is that this discriminatory contracting was a way of expressing their viewpoint. But that's never been the case with anti-discrimination laws. And that's why this poses such a threat that you can express a discriminatory viewpoint. You can do many things. You can hold it in your head, but you can't act upon it for anything that's covered by the statute. So it's never been the case that conduct would be deemed uh, to be pure speech. And this is to be distinguished from like the Baker case and the website designer case in the Supreme Court, where the argument was that it was pure speech, it was pure expression, that was writing a message on a cake or writing a message on a, a, a website was not conduct, it was pure speech. And I think the court characterized it that way. And so that's not this case. This is a contract which the judge says maybe has some message attached to it, but it's still conduct. And if it is the case that discriminatory conduct, refusing to hire somebody, refusing to promote somebody, refusing to extend contracts to somebody, if that, as long as there's some viewpoint you have uh, is now lawful that the First Amendment trumps all of this, that's going to be devastating to all the statutes that have been passed since the Civil Rights Act of 1866. So your um, argument is that this win that people like Ben Crump are, are celebrating is actually the thing that will do in uh, as, as radically problematic all the things they say that they're fighting for. Sure. I mean, you could imagine somebody who says, well, we're going to make the bathrooms in our establishment only available to whites because we want to express the viewpoint that whites need better access to bathrooms. I mean, that's essentially what the judge under the judge's analysis, that would not violate the public accommodations law, would not violate the Civil Rights Act, would not violate the contracting rights. I mean, it would not violate anything because it's a viewpoint. And the Supreme Court has never gone there. The Supreme Court has never said that conduct, discriminatory conduct, is protected speech. The Supreme Court has said speech is protected speech. You can stand on the corner and say whatever you want to say, but you can't do the conduct. Uh, and the mere fact that the conduct may be to send a message, to send a viewpoint, is is not enough. And the Supreme Court has always, as, as the plaintiff said in their brief to the 11th Circuit, because they're seeking an emergency appeal, uh, the Supreme Court has been very careful never to go there. But this judge went there. And I don't think the judge, you know, I don't know the judge. Uh, I wasn't at the argument, although I did read the transcript and I read the opinion. I don't think the judge maybe really wants this as the result. I don't think this is a judge who sat, woke up that morning and say, how can I destroy all the anti-discrimination laws? I don't think that's likely the case, but that's the result of this. Uh, it's a, it creates an absurd result. And so what the plaintiffs have done 
they within six minutes, I think it was, filed an appeal. So the way this went down procedurally, there was a verbal ruling from the bench. There were all sorts of news reports that people were celebrating. Oh, the judge turned down, you know, uh, the challenge to the uh, black women's scholarship. Uh, look, Ed Bloom lost again. We're so happy he lost, you know, because they're angry with him over the Harvard case. But there was no real reporting on what the basis for the judge's ruling is. So at Equal Protection Project, which equalprotect.org, which is our project that follows these things, we ordered the transcript. We contacted the court reporter because the transcripts are not generally available for 90 days unless you buy it from the court reporter. That's right. pretty standard at every court around the country. So we purchased it and I'm reading it. And then we got to the punchline where he said basically what I said. I said, wait a second, this this is crazy. How can that be? Did they understand what this is going to mean? But we didn't write it up. This is only two days ago. We didn't write it up immediately because he said at the end, and I'm going to issue a formal written order and opinion. I said, let me wait to see. I mean, surely when he's writing this out, he's going to realize that what, what he said from the bench really doesn't make a lot of sense. And the order is the written order and opinion is basically what he said from the bench. And as I've summarized here and paraphrased here, I haven't quoted him directly, but I paraphrased him, that basically this black woman only grant program, while it may be a contract and it may be subject to Section 1981, is still protected speech. And then he cites the recent Supreme Court ruling involving the website designer, but they're two very different cases. You got to check the story out for yourself at legalinsurrection.com. It is just like, did they, did they just in a fight for justice, just screw themselves? And what, how do we think that applies to the very concepts of free speech to begin with the, some of the original rulings and beliefs regarding what you can and can't do vis-a-vis uh, -vis contracting? It's, there's more going on than just impeachment inquiry, more going on than just the presidential race, more going on than, than Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and the passing of Dianne Feinstein. There are things that are affecting your life in ways you don't even know about that are worth your attention. Check out the story over at LegalInsurrection.com. This is Tony Katz today. So with all of the breaking news today, the insanity of, of the day, the arrest of the guy uh, possibly who killed Tupac Shakur 27 years after his, his death, the, the death of Senator Dianne Feinstein shut down and, 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 and the impeachment inquiries we've been discussing and all the rest. Um, it went under the radar, though I didn't mention it briefly the other day, that the Senate passed a resolution to reinstate the dress code. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. I think that this is worth noting because within this is a recognition of how tenuous the political scene is. You would think with shutdown conversations, funding of Ukraine, uh, a presidential election, Joe Biden's fitness uh, to, to serve, will he be replaced? There's a lot of moves and maneuvers going on. Why would dress code be on the, on, the, on the table? If Chuck Schumer knew that his own party 
His own caucus wouldn't be happy with relaxing the dress code so John Fetterman could wear shorts and a hoodie on, on, the, on the floor. Then, then why, if he, if he knew that, why would he do it? If he knew that they would just vote to put an end to this, why would he do it? My point is, is that things happen for a reason. And very rarely do you find people at this level of politics surprised They know what's going to happen. The Senate unanimously passed the resolution formalizing business attire as the proper dress code while on the floor of the chamber. There's no way Chuck Schumer didn't know that this was going to happen. Why did he do it? And why would Fetterman want to wear a hoodie on the floor? No one asked that question. Maybe he got brought up here and there, but no one asked it large. Why would he want to dress like that? Why would he want to embarrass himself like that? Why would he want to act in such a way? It doesn't make sense. It still doesn't make sense. And why would Chuck Schumer allow it lax the dress code just to see this happen? Because one could argue that this is a big embarrassment for Chuck Schumer who allowed this to happen. Isn't it a larger embarrassment for John Fetterman? Yeah, we see you in a hoodie showing up to do work uh, here in the Senate. We don't do that, John. Why don't you get with the program? Well, maybe somebody should ask why he wasn't with the program. Maybe somebody should ask why he needed this. Am I now to take it from Senate Democrats that they don't care uh, about his issues with depression? Something about this whole thing doesn't make sense. I don't like it when things don't make sense. There's a play here that I don't understand, and I want to find out what it is. Find everything at TonyCats.com. Monday, everyone. Take care. <laughs>